for a brief moment of prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for your word. As we come now, to reading, preaching, meditating upon your word, I ask that you would give me grace to understand your word and to explain it. You give my brothers and sisters the grace that they need to understand your word. Lord, this is your eternal word. You have given it to us and you have promised that your word would not return to you void, but would indeed fulfill its purpose. We ask you to remember that promise this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We come to the end of Ephesians today. 46 weeks we've been here. It's been a joyous journey for me. Paul, this, particularly this epistle, is, as I said, a treasure house of Christian truth. It's almost a little systematic theology in these six chapters. It's joyful to read it and study it, and to explain it and preach it. On the other hand, it's very exhausting because Paul is um, so very deep that you just want to look at three or four words and keep digging. But then we'd be here for probably 246 weeks and somebody would probably say, hey, do you think maybe we could you know, hear a word from some other book of the Bible, which is, which is true. Paul comes here at the end of the book, these last four verses, with seemingly mundane ideas. Listen to these words. Chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. But that you may know, also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now, we're studying a book. We come to the mighty truths that we find in chapter 2 and the powerful instructions that we see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Here at the end, in our human frailty, these words will seem almost anticlimactic. He's saying goodbye. What deep truths can you possibly get out of a goodbye? And travel plans. Well, not Paul's travel plans because he was under house arrest. But the travel plans of Tychicus. How would you like to have that as a name? Tychicus. But remember, this is a letter. This was originally a letter sent to a congregation in Asia Minor. Penned by a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Authoritatively telling them what they must believe concerning God and what duty God requires of them. And we read it the same way. It makes only perfect sense that a letter as a form of literature would end with a goodbye. If you want to look at the the longest goodbye in, in Paul's corpus, just go to Romans chapter 16. It's a long list of primarily Roman names 
Maybe someday when I go on vacation, I'll have that as the New Testament reading and have some unsuspecting uh, ruling elder have to stand up here for 10 minutes and read all of those names. No, I won't do that. I did that once. I won't do it again. I did it on accident. But what we see in this goodbye is not a perfunctory, see you later. We have to remember that in our day and age, when we say goodbye to someone, we're very well aware that we can talk to them in the comfort of our own car two minutes later through the use of our electronic phones. And even if we turn the phone off during our journey, we know that we will arrive by God's grace at a destination and a phone will be there. A computer will be found somewhere. We can email them. We can see them on Facebook. There are any other number of social media that I am completely unfamiliar with that you can get on there and find people. Indeed, we live in a day and age where it is impossible. It is impossible. Unless you really want to live like a hermit and go somewhere where you're completely off the grid, which I must admit at times does sound appealing. It's impossible to escape contact with people. They will find you. They will find you. Because we have this thing called the internet. And information travels at blink of an eye. And you have the entire world at your hand. Including goodbyes and hellos. And because we have the Encyclopedia Britannica. Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. There on the internet for us free basically. At least the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is free. Britannica, you have to pay if you want the the nicer service. But $69 a year really isn't that bad to have the entire encyclopedia at your disposal. Because we have all of this information, some of it very useful, and kids, you will find a lot more useful information in those two sites I just, just told you about than maybe some of the other sites you might visit, the entertainment sites. Because we have all of this scholarly information at our disposal. And because we have all of the media at our disposal, whether it's left wing, center wing, right wing, far right wing, far left wing, it doesn't matter. You can find someone to talk about these things. I think that in our day and age, the hellos and the goodbyes, because of all this information, have been denigrated to, well, that's no big deal. It's no big deal. Do you realize that every time you say goodbye to somebody, and they're getting into a car, and they're going to leave your visibility. That could very easily be the last time you say goodbye to them. You say hello to somebody today, that might be the last hello you say to them. Life is very fragile. Life is very brief, and it goes by altogether too quickly. So let us not downplay the importance of cordial, courteous, and godly hellos and goodbyes. In Paul's age, he didn't have the internet. A goodbye really meant goodbye. They didn't even have a decent mail service. Give a letter to some guy on a camel and have him travel for a few days, a few weeks, hopefully to get to the destination, hopefully to give the letter. It's amazing to me that in the ancient world that letters and things like this could get through. And this, in this, we see the sovereignty of God. We saw the sovereignty of God in today's epistle reading from Romans 9. We see it very clearly in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. But we also see it in history. 
Paul was able to disperse these letters to various corners of the Roman Empire for a very simple reason. God wanted it to occur that way. But God, most of the time, doesn't just snap his fingers metaphorically and have something occur. He uses human means to unveil his sovereignty. And in 60 to 62 AD, in this part of the world, the Romans were in charge. And what was called the Pax Romana was in charge, which means travel for really the first time in history. It was long periods of time. Long travels were safe. It was safe to travel in the Roman Empire because Rome had a very simple system of justice. Their justice was efficient, it was quick, and it was not painless. They did not tolerate civil unrest at all. And banditry and highway robbery, that's clearly civil unrest. And if you happened to rob a Roman citizen, you were in a world of trouble. People were afraid of the Romans. And believe it or not, contrary to popular belief, you are supposed to have a healthy fear for those who are in charge. For those who carry weapons. That's part and parcel of the job. Enough of that. Paul was able to get these letters through. And the Gospels were able to circulate once they were written because of the power of the pagan nation of Rome. God used the pagan nation of Rome to make sure that the Gospel got through. That's amazing to me. His sovereignty we see in everything. And in these goodbyes, what we really see is Paul's deep concern for the Ephesians. And what we can learn from that deep concern is that we must be concerned for each other. We must be concerned for each other. You see, this whole book is essentially dealing with God creating his people. With God redeeming his people from Jew and Gentile and making them one. So when Paul is saying goodbye here, yes, on one level he's just saying goodbye. Hey, this is the end of the letter. By the way, I'm going to send this guy to you. So let's just look at what he actually says and then look at a deeper import of what he says. He says that he, he shows his concern by these words, that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. He was under arrest, remember. Even though it was house arrest, and from what, we, from what we know historically, this first imprisonment was relatively comfortable. He was still under arrest. You may recall from our reading of the, the book of Acts, he had appealed to Caesar. And that's how he ended up in Rome. And when you appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, you're essentially appealing to the Supreme Court. A Supreme Court of one guy who might see you personally, might send a representative. Caesar, after all, would have been rather busy. And there's no court of appeal after Caesar. Right? Paul easily, the judgment could easily have gone against Paul. That's always a possibility when you go to court. You're either going to win, you're going to lose, or things are going to get put on hold, and then you come back and redo it all over again. Those are really the only outcomes. When you appeal to Caesar, he might be in a bad mood that day. Human frailty. The guy who was in charge at this time uh, wasn't exactly the most stable guy on the planet, a guy named Nero, who eventually did kill Paul. 
Nero might have just said, you know what, I just really would like to see this guy die today. And that's the type of leader that Nero was. Capricious, with absolute power over life and death. And most likely, insane. Literally insane. Not just a little off to the right or a little off to the left. You know, completely out of the box. Nuts. If you kill your own mother because you think she's going to take the throne from you, something has definitely gone wrong. The wires have not. The wires are crossed. They're not. They're not. They're not. They're not working properly. So it could have gone bad for Paul. So when Paul is saying this goodbye, we have to remember he was in a serious situation. He was in a very serious situation, and he wants them to know his affairs. He wants them to know that he's okay. And how does he make that even more clear? He's going to send somebody with the letter to let him know, to let them know these things. Tychicus. And Paul calls him a beloved brother. He's a beloved brother. Paul loved this man, Tychicus. And by reference, the Ephesians should receive him as well. Do you love other Christians? Or do you find them to be impediments to your peace of mind? Do you love the people in this church as you must, as you should? All the people in this church. And forget about that truism. Well, I love them, but I don't like them. I cannot stand that phrase. It has no semantic value whatsoever. Now, it is certainly true, and we've all had the experience where we meet someone and we just immediately hit it off. We just realize, oh, we just... We have a lot in common, and we're just in sync. And we also know people that we've known for 20, 30, 40, 50 years that even though we care for them, we don't want to see anything bad happen to them, our, our personalities just don't, just don't gel. That's got nothing to do with love. That's got nothing to do with love. Love isn't a feeling. Love isn't even a thought pattern. Love isn't sentiment. And in the case of you know, platonic love... People who are not, um, people to whom you're not married. The love is supposed to be shown in actions and in words. Now, it should be revealed in our thoughts as well, but the person cannot read your thoughts. Only your actions and your words really count in their court. So let me ask you some very simple questions Are you courteous? To all people in this church at all times. No, you're not. And we all offend people at times. It happens. Do you understand that that's wrong? And that you need to ask those people's forgiveness? Thankfully here at Middlesex right now, we, we have harmony. People are in sync with one another. Not every church is like that. Not every church is like that. There are some churches that are very dear to us as Presbyterians that are, that are in turmoil. I can think of three or four PCA churches that I know of that are not not in this presbytery or not in this state that are in a state of grievous turmoil right now for one reason or another. Because there's a lack of love in those churches. They don't care about each other. It's just simple. No matter what they say, the proof is in the pudding. 
And if you've been attacking someone for three years, then, then it really rings hollow when you say, but I do love them. I've been tearing them to shreds publicly and privately for three years, but I really do love them. I'm doing it for their own benefit. Maybe you've heard words like this. They make no sense whatsoever. It's a friend of mine who's semi-retired. He's what's called an interim pastor. When a church is without a pastor, he goes and he ministers for, for a year or so in a particular place and then moves on to another one. I was um, having an email communication with him some months back and I asked him how things were going. He says, I have to stay here for another year. I wouldn't dare, dare leave this place right now to someone who is fresh out of seminary or a rookie. They would get chewed up in two years. That sounds like a lot of fun. He says, you cannot imagine. And then he discussed things that we have seen and and experienced together. Um, Obviously not here. And he said, you know, multiply that by four or five times and you'll... I'm like, oh, wow. Multiply it four or five times and you know the intensity of the hate that's here. To, To have another Christian minister use the word hate in the context of a Reformed and Presbyterian denomination is very, is very disheartening and disconcerting to me as a pastor. To say, there's parties in this church, that church, not our church, that hate each other. That's a strong word. This is a man who's not given to saying things he hasn't thought of. And when you write things, you can read them and edit them before you hit send, hopefully. Do you love people here? Do you love other Christians who aren't even members of our denomination? How do you show that love? There's three ways you can do it, not four. You can pray for them. You can think well of them. You can speak nicely to them and nicely about them. And you can do concrete acts of kindness to them and for them when the need arises. If those things are absent, then we do have reason to question our love at that particular moment. Now, bear in mind, we're all going to fall in this. None of us will love perfectly in this life. Only God does. And that should automatically make us thankful for how deeply God loved us. What did I read as the assurance of pardon today? For God so loved the world. The world that was an enemy of his. The world that hated him that wanted nothing to do with him, and still wants nothing to do with him at all. He's a beloved brother. Antichicus is a faithful minister in the Lord. This man was obviously some type of deacon or elder. And Antichicus is going to make all things known to them. And then Paul gives them further clarification. Whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs. He said that in the previous verse, and now he's making it known to know my affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Now, comfort their hearts could be interpreted in a number of different ways. First and foremost, he's going to assure them that Paul is okay physically. That Paul is doing okay spiritually. After all, he was able to dictate this letter, most likely. He had a secretary that wrote down his epistles and his sermons and things like that. You know, assure their hearts that he's okay. 
And the Ephesians certainly lived in a part of the world where strife was fairly well known. You can go home and read the letter um, to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Now, if this letter to the Ephesians was written in 60 to 62 AD, the letter to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation was either written somewhere between 69 and 70 AD or at the very latest 90, 92, 93. Not, not, not very far, not, it's not in the distant future. They lost many, many things. All of the churches in, that, in those seven churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation, they were new churches. They couldn't have been more than 30, 40, maybe even 20 years old. They'd become rootless. Only two of them are not given a chastisement. The church at Ephesus was given a chastisement. Things were bad. Things could have gone bad. Things did go bad. And in case you haven't noticed, there is no First Presbyterian of Ephesus at the moment. If you go to visit, it's a ruin. Literally, you go and visit it, maybe they think they know where the site is. There's no church there. It's gone. Microchips. Dust. For a lot of reasons. Ultimately, it's the sovereignty of God. But in their humanity, that entire area of the world has been lost by Christianity. And now we must pray that it is regained by Christianity. Not through the sword, not through the bomb, not through the bullet, not even through politics, but through the faithful preaching of the gospel as this man was a faithful minister. We need to pray that God would raise up faithful ministers in what we call Turkey to preach the gospel. That is the only thing that changes people's hearts. That is the only thing that turns people from hate to true love. You can enforce people's behavior. You can enforce it. You cannot change their hearts. You cannot. Only God can change the heart. So if there's any hardness in your heart, guess what? You need to ask God to remove it and to soften it. We know that the world is filled with people with hard hearts. We need to pray that faithful ministers will be raised up to speak the truth to them in love. And then Paul gives them a benediction. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Let's look at these backwards. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity or are you just going through the motions? There are many people like this. And again, the sincerity of the heart is nothing that I could ever figure out. The sincerity of one's heart is nothing the session could ever figure out. The sincerity of the person that you know and love best in this world You can take a good guess at, you can deduce from their actions and their words, but you will never know it perfectly. The person you know best in this world, and the person who knows you best in this world, no matter who that might be, they do not know you as well as God knows you. Only God can know with absolute assurance, because He knows everything with full assurance, If you love Christ with sincerity. 
You see, when people come before the session, we can only go by two things. What they've said and what they've done. That's it. What they do, what they say. So whenever you hear people say, well, I think that his... No, 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 no. Don't try and go into someone else's mind. Yours is clouded enough. Don't try and read someone else's heart. Yours is, yours is hardened enough. I think that their heart isn't in the right place. Who, who are we to ever say that? Now, we can deduce those things from their behavior. But we might make a mistake. We all stumble in many ways. People often very do do horrible things contrary to what they actually want to do. Has anybody, don't raise your hand. Has anybody ever done something that they really didn't want to do and regretted almost regretted it while you're doing it? And felt yourself as if, I've got to get out of here, but I, I don't know how to stop. Because there's a part of you that wants to stop, and there's a part of you that says, Man, this, is just, this is just enjoyable. Why can't, I, why can't I enjoy this fully? I used to enjoy this. I don't enjoy it anymore. What's wrong? Well, what's wrong is God has regenerated your heart, giving you a new heart, and that's what the new birth is all about. God takes out your heart of stone, metaphorically, and gives you a heart a live heart. Just like the dead bones that dance in the book of Ezekiel. And what Christ taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about the new birth. Sincerity of heart is ultimately what we need to be after. Not just a ritualistic going through the motions. A ritualistic going through the motions will do us no good Ultimately, if our hearts are not sincere. Now, that is not a call to sloppiness. You'll hear the other thing from people. Well, well, all that matters is the heart. It doesn't really matter what you do, like in a public worship service. As long as your heart's okay with what you're doing, it doesn't matter what you do in public worship. Anybody who's been in churches long enough has heard something like that. Here's how you counter those ridiculous arguments. You just come up with something crazy. Well, would it be okay if the pastor showed up in a swimsuit? Well, no. Why not? If his heart's in the right place, why does he have to wear? Why does he have to wear a turtleneck? Why does he have to wear a tie? Let's show up in Bermuda shorts. Show up in a tank top. Show up in flip flops. Now, what's sad is that in our day and age, you might say, "Well, you know what? I actually know a church where the guy does preach in flip flops." It's not necessarily a sin. But in my view, it's a little less than decorous. Flip-flops? At least make them leather sandals. The call to sincerity of heart as the ultimate test is not a call to external sloppiness, to external disorder. The two are supposed to work hand in hand. And anybody who's ever been a leader in any organization will tell you that they will take external obedience and conformity without sincerity of heart as opposed to someone with sincerity of heart who's just causing trouble everywhere they go. Bosses like people to stand in line. They like people to show up on time. doesn't matter if you want to be there. Just be there on time and do your job. Children, listen to me very carefully. The world does not care about your feelings. 
It doesn't. It's a sad truth. They don't. Your parents do. I do. All the people in this church do. When you go out into the world, your bosses are not going to care if you're in a bad mood that day. They're not going to care if you're upset about something. Now, they might if they're good people. And if you've been there for a while. But ultimately, a boss cares about one thing. Well, a few, but they're joined together. You show up on time. You stay as long as you're supposed to. And you do exactly what you're supposed to during that time period. Other than that, they really don't care. The church is where we care. The church is where you come to receive that solace, not the workplace. And... Now, I'm just going to leave that thought alone. In verse 23, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not, you know, peace. When he gives it peace from, peace from God to the people, is not talking about a peaceful, oh man, I almost said that. It's not talking about a peaceful, warm and fuzzy feeling. It's talking about the real peace that comes from the blood treaty of Christ. That's what Paul is getting at in, Roman, in Ephesians 2. That we were at war with God and that Jew and Gentile were at war with each other. But now through the blood of Christ, those who were afar, those, that's us. And at the writing of this, our people were farther off. Unless you have Turkish blood in you, our ancestors were farther off from God than the people in Ephesus. At this point, the gospel had not gotten to Germany or Norway wasn't there, hadn't reached Poland. This is Turkey. This is Asia Minor, hadn't progressed yet. Peace from God means you are at peace with God, and you're at peace with God for only one reason, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. God making this peace treaty on his oath. So as we conclude Ephesians, I ask you one very simple question. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with Him? If you have trusted Christ as the only satisfaction for your sin, then no matter what you're feeling at the moment, you are at peace with God. Do not base your assurance of salvation upon your feelings. You'll go up and down like a yo-yo. Your assurance of your salvation comes from what God has said. And if he says in Christ, it is finished, then just believe that and you will be at peace with God. And then, and only then, can you ever have the hope of having peace and love with those around you. May God give us the grace to achieve these things in our lives here at this moment. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much. That your son died a horrible death for us. We thank you for Paul's faithfulness. And we ask, Almighty God, that you would grant us sincerity of heart in our love for him. And we ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, please stand with me, if you will. And let us think about what God has done for us.
number 202. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.